With that, turn with me, if you will, please, to the Gospel of John. How you interact with Christ tells me a ton about how you interact with God. You know why? Because he is God. (laughs) Not a trick question. In fact, the passage this morning is going to focus so heavily on this, on the reality of who Christ is, what he has come to do, and that he is enough for the Father, and yet for us, tends not to be enough for us. And hence, the title of this morning's message, Is Christ Enough for You? This is a very retroflexive type of sermon. I don't speak these very often, but the passage demands it. And even John, in the way he's writing it, demands that the reader look into his own heart and realize Christ is satisfactory to the Father who created heaven and earth. Is he, though, satisfactory for us? Or do we desire Christ plus something else? Do we desire... Christ's righteousness and then some of our own so we can have some of the reflected glory. Or we desire to follow Christ, but you know, also I want lots of money too, so I will only allow Christ this much of my life and this part of my life I'm just going to quarantine off from him. The passage this morning, as they are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, they have left the upper room, they are now walking towards That contains one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. And we're going to get to see it in its context, which is always such a delight. Uh, And I mean that with absolutely no sarcasm whatsoever. John chapter 14. I would ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. We're going to back up to verse 1. But our passage for this morning is verses 4 through 14. Jesus and them have just left. He just predicted the... Uh, the denial of Peter. I'm not going to read as good as Alexander Scurby, but I tell you. John chapter 14, as you were just about to hear, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says to them. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. Here's where we pick up. And you know the way that where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For from now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe at least on the account of the works. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. 
And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, we thank you for this passage. What a challenging passage. What what a passage that delights the mind and terrifies the soul at times. We thank you, Father, for its truths that sit so deep. We pray that we may bring some of them to the surface and thank you for them today. May your word have its work in our eager hearts. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is no small passage. This is one of those passages that you get scared of when you plan it ahead of time. Because you are dealing with massive themes. The very nature of the interaction between two persons of the Trinity, the nature of the incarnation, things that at least the organized church spent a thousand years arguing at at various councils. Because it's beyond us. Usually, if questions still exist, after thousands and thousands of theologians have sit down for over a thousand years and there's still a question mark, here's, I got a good suggestion for you. That's not a question you can answer. Because that's not why it's included. And as much as I love theology, and that's something that I would love to sit here and kind of pick apart it and understand this, I want to stick with why John is including it. Because John is putting the reader in the place of Philip. Philip, who is looking at the incarnation of Christ and going, "Eh, I'd rather see the Father than this. And where Jesus asks him back, am I not enough? It's not enough that you've seen me. You have to see something more than that. Do you not realize that what you have seen in me is the Father? I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. How can you say, show us the Father? Isn't that all I've been doing? You, you don't even believe the words? Fine. At least believe the works. How many times has John put both of them in front of us? The words and the works of Jesus just... Straight up, believe the words. You say, well, the words are complicated. The words are difficult. Fine, it's a hard saying. That's great. He's the bread of life. Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Hard saying, great. But look at his works. He's dragging the world to life. Do you not see it? Do you not see him pulling life out of darkness? Do you not see the light emanating from him, bringing life and immortality to the knowledge of the sons of man? John is including this so that we can see this part of who we are too. But that's not the primary purpose here. Believe it or not, the primary purpose is not about us. The primary purpose is it's about Christ. And so what are we learning about him here? Let's start back at verse 4. He says to them, you know where I'm going. This is one of the reasons why in the previous passage I did not preach it that this was just about them going to their own martyrdoms, that someday they will go and follow him. Because they were confused about the destination. He says, the destination is the Father. The destination is the place I am going to prepare a place for you. Well, how do you get to the Father? You get him by the way, the path, the place where the feet step. So what is that? It's me. You're not going to get to the Father except through Christ. He said, well, no, I'm very religious, but 
I just don't go to church. You're not religious. Not in any meaningful sense. Those who follow the Lord are delighted by the presence of his people. You want me to believe your words? Make sure your works match them. This is what he is saying here. His words and his works match. And if you have a hard time with Jesus' words, pay attention to his works because he's doing the same thing he's saying. Life and light. The way to the Father. And Philip misses it. And most of us miss it. And Jesus says, if you're going to miss that, you at least need to pay attention to what I'm doing. Because deep down, you know where I'm going. They may not have known the exact path he was going to take, but they did know that he was going to go the way to the Father. Let me ask you this. And this just bubbles up from leftover rage from last Sunday, from sitting under a false teacher for an hour. What is the way of Christ? What path did he walk to the Father? Was it, was it a gold-lined street of nothing but ease and couches and bonbons and chocolate-covered strawberries? Or is it the way of the cross? The way of suffering and difficulty and betrayal and rejection and hatred and abandonment of closest friends, only to die one of the most torturous, shameful ways for someone to die? What is the way of the cross? When we look at our Christian lives, what is it that we expect? Do we expect comfort and ease? Or do we expect ourselves to endure suffering as we ought and rise above it? Not to rise above it in some stoic way as to say, this won't harm me, no. But to suffer as we ought with lament and difficulty. Grave difficulty at times. And to say, whether or not the outcome today looks worth it, I know where this path goes. And as Jesus had said multiple times to his disciples, the one who loses his life for my sake will truly find it. But the one who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. All of those who are self-serving living at the time that Jesus was speaking, who extended their life through various means of medical or however the way may be, health and all this kind of stuff. Where are they today? How many of them are still alive? It's not a hard question. It was 1,950 years ago. How many of them are still alive? They sought to extend their life. They sought to preserve their life. And what happened? They lost it. Because the grave comes for us all. So what does Jesus say? But the one who loses his life on the path of Christ, on the way of the cross, the one who picks up his cross and follows me, the one who loses his life for my sake will what? They will find it. Why do they say that? Because the promises in the words of Christ go past the grave. Resurrection. Think of the promise of an indestructible life. Think of the promise of a life, even if it ends, it doesn't end. 
Even if it rips our soul from our bodies, we are at home with the Lord. Think of a promise that powerful. You say, that is an enormous thing to believe. That is an enormous thing to believe. Most of us have never been faced with our own deathbed and actually questioned how much we hold to that. I have sat next to many people that have been Christians longer than I've been alive, grappling with the reality of it towards the end. But Christ's words are as indestructible as his works. What did he do but walk the path before us that he calls us to? What we are called to is a life of faithfulness and obedience to the Father no matter the cost. What if it's threats? Bring it. What if it's sickness and abandon, nakedness, peril and sword? Bring it. What if it is crucifixion and shame? What if I lose father and mother and brother and sister, spouse, and even my own life? It is worth it. We know one who walked this path before us. And not even 24 hours after saying these things, went to his own cross, went to the grave, fully entrusting his soul to the Father. And we are told the same thing. And yet so many are bogged down by the cares of this world. We have insulated ourselves so much from suffering in this world that even when we get a small sickness, we act like it's the end of the world. Or when we act like when, when, when something doesn't go right somehow, it, it depresses us in some way. We start despairing of circumstances. We have insulated ourselves from so many small sufferings, we do not know how to handle the massive ones when they come. So we haven't been practicing. And so ours is a very modern problem, whereby we don't have to sweat the small stuff and we don't know how to deal with the big stuff. And so here... Christ speaking to them in a society where they were very close to the threat of starvation every day and knew very well if food was not worked for in the planting times, you wouldn't eat at the harvest. There's not a grocery store around the corner. You have to take care of yourself. You have to ensure these things. You have to plan ahead. You have to depend upon the Lord. And sometimes the rains don't fall. We complain when inflation goes up a single percentage point. We live like kings. And it is so hard for us to see how valuable suffering is to our path. That we think that a good, solid Christian life is just the avoidance of it altogether. And it shows up in our prayers. When suffering comes our way, I've, I've seen it in my own prayers. God, take this from me. I don't want to suffer. As if suffering was always bad. It's not. It's actually quite purifying at times. Nobody enjoys it while they're doing it, and yet, 
We're told to see it from a completely different perspective. What is it that the book of James begins with? It, it spins the whole world on its head, doesn't it? Just like all wisdom literature does. James, if you're not familiar, is the Proverbs of the New Testament. That's what I call it. What does he do with suffering, trials, tribulations, difficulties that come across the path of a Christian? The very first book written in the New Testament, right? We have Genesis through Malachi, now the church. The first sentence that comes out of the church in the New Testament era, what is it? Who knows? Count it all joy. When you pass through various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, before we get to what it is, it's doing something. There's intention behind it. There's purpose for it. Be grateful for that. Because the alternative is what we usually think, which is meaningless, purposeless suffering. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God who has purpose in evil. We serve a God who has purpose in suffering and difficulty. Those of you who became Christians late in life and regret those years, there was purpose to it. It brought you to salvation. Be thankful. You came to Christ because of the grace of God. Do not live in the shadows. What he has given to you is light and immortality, an indestructible life. And you say, that is an enormous promise. Yes, pay attention to his works, though, if the words are hard. What did he do? But with full resolute, go straight to the cross. Could he have any moment called down the legions of heaven just as the Sanhedrin was taunting him with to take him down from that cross? Yes. Why? Why endure it? The book of Hebrews says, because there was a joy set before him, he endured the cross and brought many sons to glory. Thomas is saying to him, we have no idea where you're going. We don't know the future. We don't know the end of this road. We don't even know what the road looks like. Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we even know the way? We don't know the destination. How could we know the way? And he turns to him and says, you know both. You're looking for instructions to get to Capernaum. I'm telling you something cosmic. I love, I love the way Jesus speaks in these situations. I don't say that just because it's him. But it is mesmerizing the wisdom that he speaks with. Because when he speaks, he's not trying to clear up the confusion. He's trying to drive them deeper into a trust to the Father and a trust upon him own self. So what does he say to him? Thomas is asking a very specific question. I don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. And so Jesus answers back and says, I'm the way. Is that cleared up? In Thomas's mind, in Peter's mind, in Philip's mind, it's very obvious. They're expecting like, He's going to go to northern Galilee or something, and they don't know exactly where he's going, and they don't know which road to take. And Jesus goes, yeah, I'm the road. That didn't clear anything up. 
In addition to me being the road to where I am going, I'm the truth. In case you missed it, I'm the life. No one goes to my destination but through me. What's the destination? Read the rest of that verse. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by the way, me. This is why it is not just about suffering. Though the road be thorny indeed, it is not just about difficulties. It is not just that the way is hard. It is that the way is the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is synonymous with the way of the cross because that is the way he took. Which means Christians need to be prepared from the earliest infancy of their Christian walk to be held to challenge, even if their very life depends upon it. I know very well that I can convince people to a false gospel. I know very well that I can just promise them that things will be better in their life if they just come to church and follow Jesus. But I'm lying to them in order to trick them so that I can feel legitimized. So instead, what do we preach? We preach Christ crucified. You say, well, what if Jews find that offensive? Find it offensive. What if Greeks find it foolishness? Find it foolish. What if Americans find it old-fashioned? Find it old-fashioned. We can't preach anything else but the way of the cross. And if we start preaching something else, they will start following something else. Jesus is the way to the Father, it is narrow, it is difficult, and the road is small and short that leads to life. But the way that leads to death is broad, it is flat, it is simple, and the door is huge. And many are those who go by it. Do not hear in those warnings. And it says, well, then I just got to try really, really hard and not sin anymore, and then Jesus will be... No, 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 no. Don't miss the gospel. The way is not you. The way is Christ. Because everything, everything in this world will desire your allegiance instead of his. There was an old hymn. Nobody sings it anymore, unfortunately. It speaks about reality that so many in the world have cast their lots in with the ways of this world, but we have cast our lot into the beloved, and we will follow him there. It's a remarkable hymn. I don't even remember the title of it. I just remember that. It says that what we take of our life and what we invested in determines the outcome, right? Any of you have ever invested in something financially? You put your money in something? How well it does is based on what it was capable of, right? Supposedly. You put it in there. Now, have all of those things delivered on all the promises they ever made? Put your money in, you know, company X. Or, well, there's actually one named that now, so hang on a second. Uh, company W. How's that? And you go like, 
This one promises a 37% return year over year and dividends forever. What's your expectation on that investment? Somebody's lying or doesn't know math. But let's say you put it in there and it doesn't deliver on its promises. Did you invest in something good? No. This is why we see what the Lord has said and we see what he has done and we invest ourselves into him. What if it looks like it's a bad day? Sometimes you invest in something that's able to deliver and what it promises on. That doesn't mean every single day is a good day, does it? Sometimes you have to ride out the crazy. Same thing with the Christian walk. It is the way of wisdom, and it is the way that leads to life, because Christ himself is wisdom incarnate. And as he speaks these words, he is showing them, I'm not preaching something new. I'm not giving you something new. Even though I give you a new commandment, it's just because you're in a new situation. There is still one God. You are still to love him with all your soul, mind, and strength. You are still to love your neighbor as yourself, but... There's a new commandment I'm giving you specifically to Christians. Love one another even more than your neighbors. As you are family. He says he is the way. How many times did he describe this to them? The world hates me, it's going to hate you. If you're friends with the world, you're at enmity with God. There's only two paths, the narrow and the broad. Christ and not Christ. And if Christ is not enough, then we will find ourselves on a different path. This is what he says to Philip. Philip comes up and says to him, Excuse me, Jesus says first in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. In other words, in all of these happenings, you think you're dealing with something different than the Father. You're not. We're one and the same God. Our works, our words, our intentions, our promises are all identical. Our roles are different, but our purpose is the same. Our being is the same, even though our persons are separate. It's a remarkable testament to these things. He says, from now on you have known him and have seen him. Philip goes, hang on a second. This sounds like a great opportunity to be like Moses and to request to see the face of God. Show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied. Moses asked the same thing on the top of the mountain, didn't he? Show me your glory. Show me your face. What did God say? No. No man can see me and live. But I will cause, if you never picked up on it, I will cause just one attribute of mine to pass in front of you while I cover you over and stuff you into the side of a mountain, and you'll get to see the trailing afterglow after my goodness passes by you. 
And if you have anyone who tries to explain what in the world is going on there, they have no idea what's happening there because no one has ever experienced that outside of Moses. And the description we have is so very confusing. But God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass, and then after I'm done, I'll remove my hand. And you can see the trailing afterglow, if you will. And Moses' face shone so powerfully that he had to wear a veil for 40 days just from seeing the afterglow of one of the virtues of the backside of the God they were following. And you ask me why I am intimidated every time I walk into a pulpit. It's because it's his words that I'm talking about. Philip looks at Jesus and goes like, you have no form or uniqueness. You're just a guy. Nobody even knows that you're the creator of the world. You, nobody even, barely anyone knows you're the Christ. They want to have you as king because you're able to make free bread. And so they announce in Jerusalem the week before, you know, Hosanna to the king of David. So Philip goes, I want to see that. Let me see the father. All of us will be witnesses to it. For some reason, he's okay with Judas Iscariot missing out on that, which is weird. He says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Do you ever feel that way? I just want a miracle in my life. Then I will believe the Lord more. No, you won't. Faith is a gift, it is not the outcome of the eyes. Faith is a gift. You could witness God come down and raise someone from the dead. You would not have an ounce more faith than you do now. Faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. What do you hear? The words of God. Because it is not our eyes that increase our faith. It is God who increases our faith. And the primary mechanism through which he does it is his word. I remember when we sat down and we were working through chapter 2 and seeing the, the wedding of the Canaan of Galilee there. And we were seeing Jesus multiply all of these water cisterns into wine cisterns. An incredible thing mesmerizing, and I asked the question, how many of you think you would have deeper and greater faith if you just witnessed an undeniable miracle? Most everyone raises their hands. It is because we think faith a work of our own that we think that. Well, I verified something, therefore my faith is stronger. No. Faith is a gift. Everywhere in Scripture, God confers it to his people that they trust his word. You say his word is hard. Yes, but do you believe it? And if you don't believe the words because they're hard, at least believe the works that he did. Philip has already seen the works of God for four years. And still he's saying, I want to see the Father. He's like, you've seen the Father. It's not enough for you. In theology, we call the issue divine hiddenness, which is just a fancy thing for people to get PhDs to make up. 
in reality, it just means, why can't we see God ruling the world from the sky? Because that's not how faith works. That is not how God works. And if we saw that, we would all die. No man can see him and live. It doesn't work that way. And yet they're sitting there with the one through whom all things were fashioned and made, and set, <laughs> excuse me, set in their orbits and intended and follow his very command and are upheld by the word of his power. And still Philip does not understand a whit of it. And Jesus, if you don't hear disappointment on his voice, I don't know what you're reading. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He said, well, yeah, but all his glory. No, stop. Haven't you seen Christ in Christians before? Something that you know works in them that's better than them stronger and more loving than them. A patience that's not theirs naturally that comes out of them and it's infectious. A kindness that you know does not come from them. A love that does not originate in our hearts. You've seen Christ, dear Christians. And as Christ is walking around, Philip misses it entirely and he looks at him and he says, You've seen the Father. You say, isn't that overstating the question? No. Jesus himself says the exact same thing in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, one of the most difficult passages in all the scripture, and I'm terrified of it because we're coming up to it. But he addresses the reality there that he wants the same unity that he has with the Father before the world was to have with his people. If that doesn't scare you, you've never preached a sermon before. Preaching on that is one of the hardest things because how often do we fail? And we still claim to be followers of Christ. How often would we desire days of ease in exchange for our sufferings? How many times are we thankful for our difficulties rather than praying for them to go away? How many times are we reluctantly on the way of the cross, and would rather any other path give me porcupines to walk on some days. Because following Christ is difficult. The task of discipleship is not for the faint-hearted. And it is why Christ tells us Either he is enough for us or nothing will be. Because there is nothing you can put in your knapsack along that way to make the path of the cross worth it, except Christ. There's a great algebra expression in the gospel, if you're not familiar with it. It's kind of one of these things that works the opposite of the way math works, but that's kind of what algebra is anyway. Christ plus everything equals what? Nothing. Christ plus anything Equals what? Nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. God has given us, 2 Peter 1 says, everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
Therefore, we add to our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly kindness and love. We act out of something that's already sufficient. You say, well, what does Jesus think about the law? Aren't we just, aren't we just here doing what's right? That's missing the point. We follow the law because it brings life and it's already fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, it has no condemnation to us. But we follow it with our hearts and we love following it. Why do we avoid adultery? Why do we avoid murders? Why do we avoid stealing? Why do we avoid extortion and, and all of these things? We avoid them because we love Christ and because we know the value of life. And we would rather be wise as he is than wise in our own eyes. We would rather fear the Lord than the opinions of man. This is setting us up for this most misinterpreted passage here at the end. He asked Philip, he says in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Look at the words, look at the works. They are in perfect unison. Not even in the, just the person of Christ, but between the person of the Father and the person of Christ. Perfect unity. He says to him in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else at least believe on the account of the works themselves. You say, how? How on earth are we able to verify that? How on earth are we able to see that? How can we handle it? How can we deal it? We know that John, writing in 1 John chapter 1, says... He's writing and speaking about that which his hands have handled, his eyes have seen. They got to see Christ physically. And for some of them, it still wasn't enough. We have never seen him. And yet we love him. And he has worked into our hearts a love of his words that cannot be explained and a joy that passes any understanding that we have to give us knowledge of things that aren't knowable and a love for things we cannot fully perceive. To devote our lives to something we cannot truly account for. And yet, what does he promise here? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, whoever has faith in me, these are his followers now, these are Christians, this is you and I, I pray, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and they will do greater works than these. What? Do you see the Christian life like that? That you are doing greater works than Christ? Do you? What are these greater works? The man walked on the sea. He raised the dead. He healed the blind. He healed the deaf. And unless you know something that I don't, none of us have ever done that. With a word, he cast out demons. With a word, he healed sick. I probably have a fever as of this afternoon. Any of you know how to heal that? 
like that? No? What greater works are we doing that he's talking about? Not asking for ideas. Rhetorical. What works do we do? When we preach the gospel and we bring the word of God to bear in sinners' ears, God through us does miracles inside their heart greater than being raised from the dead. He brings the spiritually dead alive. He said, well, we would rather an actual resurrection take place in front of us. Why? Oh, we want to see it. Wouldn't that increase our faith? No, only the Lord does this, not your eyes. He said, I want, I want to see somebody healed of blindness. I would rather see somebody have a greater work that they are the blindness and the scales on their eyes with view to the word of God is removed. That the Lord gives them eyes to see and the Lord gives them ears to hear. I have seen these miracles where the word of God, once hated by a dead and diamond hard heart, cracks that heart open and takes it out, shoves in a heart of flesh, and they start to love the things of God. That is a miracle far greater than a healing of sickness or blindness or deaf or mute or anything else. The things that Jesus was doing was foreshadowing the nature of the gospel and the reality of the coming world. A world in which there will be no blind or deaf or mute or any part of these things that come to us from the fall that maladate us. And until that day, we suffer with our heads held high because we know the way that we are traveling and we know where we are going. It is not just that we are going to heaven when we die. It is that we will be together in the presence of the Father. And it doesn't matter what comes our way. It is worth it. It doesn't matter how many thorns are sticking out of the bottoms of our feet. The thorny way is worth it. It doesn't matter how difficult or how narrow or how lonely that, word, that way gets. Christ is with us. And he is our hope of glory. And so he says to them, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these will they do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Where did your minds go when you heard that? Ooh, no limits? Shouldn't this be able to verify everything then? Christian, why don't you ask God for a Ferrari? I mean, anything, right? Isn't that what he's saying? That we can all of a sudden turn off all the virtues of the Christian life and just go, just give me a mountain of gold or platinum, or tritium, or whatever the most valuable thing is these days. Just give me a mountain of money, and then all my sufferings will go away. Is that true? No. Well, all your friends will go away because you're not giving it to them. 
A lot of family will come out of the woodwork. That I'll tell you that, Mount. That's okay. The most efficient way to get rid of bad family is to lend them money. At least you'll have plenty. <clears throat> what does he mean by this? What is he saying with this? Is he saying, carte blanche, anything you ask, I'll give to you? The answer is yes. So long as you are walking the way of the cross and you are emulating the virtues of Christ and focused on the gospel, yes. Because what things will you be asking him for? Wisdom. You'll be asking him for gratitude. You will be asking him for contentedness. You'll be asking him for patience. You'll be asking him for the virtues of the Christian life. You'll be asking him for the salvation of those that he has set his heart on, not just the salvation of those that you would want. So you will ask it only if it is in accordance with your will because your will is all I want. Isn't it? Because following the way of Christ, what is it that he wanted but to do the will of the Father today and tomorrow and always? We would desire the will of the Father. So if it is his will to give me a Ferrari, I guess I'll make my peace with that. But if it is not, which everything seems pointing to the reality that it's not, <laughs> though I did get some small ones after I gave that example one time, God make me more like Christ. who delighted in the will of the Father no matter what came his way. Who, though having the power of heaven and earth at his disposal, stayed nailed to a cross and beaten until there was nothing of his back resembling humanity. Christian your path may or may not take you to those levels of suffering. But may I encourage you to something that I have had to learn very difficultly. Being grateful for sufferings while they are occurring is one of the greatest gifts I've ever experienced in the Christian walk. For many, many years, I was only thankful after I saw some of the good effects of suffering. It wasn't even a year ago that I actually thanked God for the middle of suffering when I was in it. And I highly recommend it. Because it's like going to the soul's gym. It works you out. It stretches you. And it makes you grateful in a way that did not exist before. And it makes you appreciate what God is doing when you do not understand or like what is happening. Our goal is the glory of him who lives forever. And if that is your goal, and that is your purpose, ask anything of the Lord, and he will do it. May God be praised. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this passage. We thank you, Father, for what difficulties you may be preparing in our path to walk through with us. We thank you for your presence. 
We pray, Father, that it continually drive us to our knees, that what humility you are gifting to us, we learn without great resistance. Father, we know that you comfort us in our difficulties, that we may comfort one another. And for this, we are very grateful. We do lift up because we do know that there are Christians in our town that are mourning the closure of their own church here next week. We pray for them. We pray for their hearts, that you would make them grateful for the path that you are continually leading them on, and that you would set their feet on ground that they can see is stable, or at least show them the ground they're already standing on is stable. We thank you, Father, for this very week that sits in front of us. We thank you for the failures that will humiliate us. We thank you for the graces that will delight us. We thank you, Father, even for the sins that continually remind us of our need of Christ. May we never become haughty in our own eyes, but instead fear you and turn away from evil. Keep our feet on the narrow path because we know where it ends and we know the path, Christ himself. May we never shy away from what we know to be right in preference to what is expedient. We pray all this in your son's name and for his sake. Amen.